that's all right. <laughs> I remembered. I remembered. No, mate, welcome to HR Studio. Absolute pleasure. I think we first met, in inverted commas, we techno met. We did. We emailed, Virtually. what, two weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah. Flash good. Back. Here you are. I know, and here I am, yeah. Here you are, in, this, in the HR Studio with broken aircon. Yeah. It, it's like being in an ISO container somewhere <laughs> unpleasant all over again. <laughs> in fact, the last time I was in one of these, I think, doing this, was Telic 4 on a, in a BFBS booth at Shiver Logbase, reading out messages home or something similar. Oh, God. Yeah. But that was depressing. It, well, it was, other than it was about the only building I'd been in for three months that did have air conditioning. <laughs> so I was quite happy. BFBS, living the life. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. So obviously we've been connected through Haiti. Yeah. Where you're working now. You're not serving anymore. Um, so, the, so the comment I wanted to make, because I'll forget to say otherwise, <coughs> I went on to I went on the website um, after we spoke a couple of weeks back, and mate, and this isn't me going, this isn't me plugging Haydinia, right? But, but you can that, though, if you want, it's fine. Uh, but that website is probably the most. It, it is who set who built that website. It is awesome, and there's one key Thank thing. You. That stands not out. me. It no, wasn't, it not wasn't me. You. No. Do you know what it is with it? It's really simple. The one, the one th- apart from it is really well put together. The information on it is really good. The, the image, it's all just it's just cool. I like it. I like the way I like the I like the the way it flows. But Ooh. the key thing for me is it's built in a. It, it's made for in the assumption that people are viewing it on a landscape in a landscape uh what you call it screen in a landscape screen which even today most websites are not built they're built like they're still narrow they're, they're built narrow yeah right because it, it's something that popped in my head a couple of years back it's no last year probably breaking me why in like in business you know i've got a day job why are we still like, why are we still like putting together word documents in portrait? Every no one's printing shit off anymore. Yeah, the days are not gone. You know, the days are not gone. Like, why aren't we doing everything landscape? I, I still do. What do what? Print, print stuff, stuff off. off. I, you know, I think I've got that recently. A couple of things. I can't read it. I can't read it properly otherwise. Well, well, because it's in fucking portrait. Oh right, hang on. Just because. Oh, you mean screen? Oh yeah. I'm a bit old-fashioned yeah. like that, I'm sorry. Anyway, Hayden website is very Okay, well, very I'll good. take the compliment. Like, That's brilliant, honestly, thank you. Honestly. Yeah, no, the guys have done a cracking job um, in the last few months at um, bringing it up to scratch. It's it's, it's gloomy. Anyway, that's, that's bum-looking Hayden out the way. <coughs> oh, right, I'll strap dev- myself oh, in Hayden's web, web developers, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's some good people in there. <laughs> they do a cracking job. Right. Icebreaker, when we were talking in the icebreaker, you mentioned something. Um, Apparently, I was talking for too long, though. Well, no, but you weren't. You you just longer than which the isn't the first time that's been said for. of me. But that's because so. I didn't set the guidelines beforehand, which uh, I need to do. It's, you're looking at like arcs. a couple of minutes per per question, really max. So when I gave you my top five film, when you said you what's your best five. film, we, yeah. yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, and then you gave um, you gave two two inspirations, and but talk through in detail why in detail why okay. For a long time. I'm not complaining. That's good. good <laughs> anyway, right. You put me off a fucking track. Sorry. Oh yeah, you mentioned on the icebreaker. So when we were talking, you would. So obviously you were you when you served. You know, lots of leadership of men, twin commander, two IC, adjutant as well. Yeah. Right. Um, on ops, and 
and different units. And you mentioned that you you have someone close to you. I do. Who teaches uh, vulnerable kids or kids with special educational needs. She does. Yeah. And that in listening to her experience and understanding how she does things and just, uh, <coughs> yeah, not learning about all of that, you see similarities in in the way she, you have, in like in way a military leader has to try and draw out the best from their soldiers. The yeah. challenges there, you see similarities in in the challenges that she has with the kids with special educational needs. <laughs> no, no, that would people would maybe listen to that and, and think the insinuation is that well soldiers are uh, are, are impoverished. Yeah. Or, or people with special educational needs, which is not what I think you meant. It is not. But I did want to dig into it. Okay. So, go. So, and the icebreaker that you allude to, uh, our icebreaker, when I met my wife, uh, was a discussion, as you do when you're kind of meeting someone and getting to know them, and you ask what each other does and what experiences they've had and and all the rest of it. And... We got into quite a long conversation um, about what we did for a living. I probably spoke far too long. I think she was looking at a clock in the same way that you were during the icebreaker. But it was, it, it, I think it was more a comparison of our experience, mine as a young platoon commander, trying to get the best out of young soldiers. Hers as, a, as someone who'd been a music teacher originally, but then had gone into... Um, more the kind of behavioural and educational management side of things, so special edu educational needs, coordination and so on, um, in a secondary setting. And there were some correlations in relation to the experiences that those young people had all had, whether it be socioeconomic or, or depravity or, you know, just just the upbringing that they'd had that meant that some of our... And that's not to say that all the children that she dealt, dealt with or, or taught had had those experiences and had come from those backgrounds because they hadn't. In the same way that by no means all of my soldiers had had those experiences or come from back, that background because they hadn't either. But as we all know, I think you end up spending whatever the, and I'm going to make up the statistics now because most good statistics are made up on the spot, 80% of your time dealing with 20% of the people. And I think we both had a, a similar experience in that respect. And the issues that had led those young people to needing the support that they got from my wife when she was teaching them or trying to manage their behaviour, and me as a young platoon commander trying to, you know, in, in the simplest terms, keep the lads in camp, stop them doing the things that they wanted to do that were not really, you know, supporting what we were trying to achieve in kind of terms of what the battalion was doing or what we were what our mission was if you wanted to put it into kind of that kind of language they were very similar and the experiences that they had were very similar that had led them to needing that support and so that for us that that icebreaker over you know some drinks in london somewhere it obviously you know however many years 20 years later um we made a connection over that and you know, and that's why I, I admire her so much in relation to how she has, you know, how she's managed her her children and got some of those outcomes out of them through 
understanding those experiences and what they've been through, which is the same as, you know, we, we would have heard writ large, know your men or women, but you know your soldiers. And if you know your soldiers, then you are then in a better position to get the most out of them, both for them individually or for them as part of the team. Um, and it's that deep understanding of those in that situation that are, you know, kind of subordinate to you, if you want to put it in that language. But it's applicable, I think, in any team. If you understand where people have come from and what makes them tick, you've got a much better chance of getting the most out of them, developing them as they need to be developed or ought to be developed, and also then having good outcomes in terms of what you have been asked to do as a, as a team. How do you how do you how do you gain that understanding in your men? Spend you time with them. I think for me, you know, you can read you can read about as much as you can read about when they're you know, someone's P file, you know, where they come from, where they live, what they what school they went to, where the, what were their influences in and certainly you know, I joined a single battalion county regiment. So you know, and then commanded a company in, in the Raw Welsh where, and you probably recognise this, most of the lads were known by their last two because I had eight Williamses in the company. Now, they weren't all related quite clearly, but quite a lot of them were. And in B Company 1 Cheshire that I joined as a platoon commander, um, we had primarily, and it was just how it worked out, I think, but we had lots of brothers and cousins. Um, the battalion had fathers and sons. I mean, as it happened, the CO and the 2IC were brothers-in-law. So it was classic kind oh of, it was classic single battalion <laughs> county regiment <laughs> stuff. And all our lads were from, I think they were mostly from kind of Runcorn and Warrington. C Company were all Birkenheaders. And so you could, uh, you could learn a lot about someone else by spending time with their mates. Because they all talk to each other. They all spend every weekend back home with each other. And so you get, and I think the best time for that, sorry, is out on exercise or on ops or whatever it is where you are with them and almost, you know, isolated from other things. And you understand, you see them individually and collectively and you can start to work out how people tick and what approaches you need to take to get the best out of them. You know, some respond well to straight lines, binary, left and right of arc, move now. And others need to be kind of maneuvered in a different way to either develop them to their best ability or to <coughs> deliver the outcome for for the team as necessary. But I don't think you can do that without understanding who they are and, and what's in their character. The dynamics of, a, the, 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 the dynamics of units like that it just seems so alien to me. In that as a as a nationally recruited, yeah. yeah, geocentric, and I've. It was brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. What are the pros and cons of having of 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 having a unit like that? Um, there are there are many on both sides. Handling the cons first, um, I think there are. You know, everyone knows everything and everyone, so there's no escaping anything fresh starts are difficult in that type of environment because you know 
make a mistake, upset someone, have a ding dong with someone, all that kind of stuff. There's kind of nowhere to go. You know, you can't really kind of learn your lessons from that that event and then move on in isolation of it because it I think it would it would have a, a tendency to kind of perpetuate in the corporate memory of the organization more than it would do um, in a large regiment with battalions up the yin yang where you could probably you know you could probably have a scrap in the screws mess and move battalions and and stand a better chance of fulfilling your potential in career terms than you would be if you you had to stay in that battalion as an example um, being slightly generic but pros wise and there are probably other cons but pros that esprit de corps you know that was our thing so join the parachute regiment you're a paratrooper that's your that's your binding principle um and i suppose these days join the rifles you're a rifleman you know funny marching sharp all that kind of good stuff you join the Cheshires, what's that thing? It's being a Cheshire, which is a geographical-centric kind of ideology. And so the lads were fiercely loyal to each other because of that geographical focus, whether it be company across company, you know, the Birkenhead Company and the Warrington Company, for example, um, or... You know, the classic the classic kind of rivalry was Cheshire's Kingos. You know, the Mersey sat between and similarly with the Royal Welsh Fusiliers who were the other side of the D, you know, kind of in North Wales. And and it was being from Cheshire that the lads all pinned themselves to in relation to what made them want to be there and stay there and then ultimately fight next to each other. And so that was the thing, you know, that when we when we became the Mercian Regiment, 2007, and all the councils got together, and I wasn't involved in that. I was away somewhere, probably at Sandhurst instructing, and, and the thing that the council were desperate to do... Which What do you mean? What? So the Regimental Council. Oh, Regimental Council. Sorry. Right, yeah, yeah, sorry. So when you're bringing together Cheshire Regiment, Staffordshire Regiment, and the Worcestershire Sherwood Foresters, all of whom had a culture based on geographic identity... It was maintaining that culture into the new regiment that was the main effort, and I and I would I would agree with that. But it became increasingly difficult to do because you then you you kind of cobbled together all those counties, and it didn't really form a kind of a natural. Um, you know, if you're going to choose geography, this geography has to be strong. Um, and my opinion, but I think we didn't quite emulate that strength as single county battalions into the new regiment. Now, I haven't served in that regiment since I was the adjutant, so I'm sure that an, a good mate of mine who's currently CO2 Mercian would probably tell me that they still have that same thing. It might be for a slightly different reason as when we were putting commanders together in one Cheshire. Um, but as someone who had, had and, and most of the lads don't know any different, you know, there's probably the CO and the QM that have uh, that have worn a different cap badge these days, in in our terms. So whether they were Cheshires or Woofers or Staffords or what have you, um, but so the lads all just know 
being Mercian. And so their thing is being a Mercian soldier. Um, whereas for me, it was, I joined the Cheshires because I wanted to be a Cheshire. And having been at university up in the Northwest, that resonated to me. And then it didn't take me long to identify with that battalion quite fiercely, probably through through loyalty with the lads because they already had it just by default and it was quite infectious um, and I think it stood us in good stead when we went on operations How do you cultivate an environment like that uh, which is a, which is um, one of you I think you said there that fierce what's the word Loyalty. Loyalty, brotherhood, sisterhood. Esprit de corps. Esprit de corps. How do you, how do you cultivate something like that in the civilian world? Um, or is it not possible? Uh, I think it's possible because it's, it, it's all, it's human beings. You know, you probably get the same at a rugby club or similar. Um, where you, I mean, it, trust and I, and a and common common per shared purpose i think are the things that start to bring those things together and that's sports a little bit different though i meant business so sports i understand yeah ba- yeah i understand but pr- in pr- in principle though it's the same though isn't it if you if you're playing a rugby match you need to trust the guys left and right of you and your common purpose is winning the match and performing well if you are in business of whatever kind and or you might it might be not for profit or it might be seeking to make bag loads of profit but ultimately you need to have a shared common purpose within a kind of value structure and trust in each other and then I think you're all pointing in the same direction um, and you'll be you'll be successful and you'll breed that that loyalty that is also necessary I think to to bring everyone through, people work at different, you know, move at different speeds, but you get through as a team collectively. So I think you, you, you're right. There are the, 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 there's probably the physical element of sport, particularly rugby, the military. You know, there are. It's a more visceral kind of experience, but the principle of trusting the people around you and understanding. The direction of travel, I think, still applies across into business and other areas of life. Mm. Bringing you this podcast today are the Aardvark Group. Founded in 1982, Aardvark has established itself as a major player in its field, renowned for its exceptional technology and innovative propositions that have supported countless defence ministries, the humanitarian and NGO sectors, and commercial operators in theatres of war and post-conflict environments around the world. Aardvark is foremost a humanitarian organisation working to help rid the world of the explosive remnants of war. Their technologies are uniquely developed by operators for operators, which ensures that every product, system or platform conforms to the essential criteria of stability, survivability and reliability. Aardvark 
know that to have a truly lasting positive impact, their technologies must be cost effective. And so they've commissioned a number of projects with their research partners to develop technical innovations with a core aim of delivering affordable solutions that can be deployed directly into communities to reduce the incidence of accidents and deaths due to explosive threats. As well as their core products and services, they also have an online shop where if you're an individual who works in a post-conflict zone in a high-threat situation, in a high-threat environment, you can get kit from Aardvark. Their website is aardvark.group. Go there and at checkout, use the discount code HHOUR. And while you're there, make sure you check out all of their products, all their services, including unmanned ground and air vehicles even more challenging now with the dis- with the with how much more physically disconnected people are yeah. with you know uh what's the word what's the word remote, remote yeah working. yeah remote definitely and I, and I, and you've probably identified yourself from having done virtual podcasts to sitting in your delightful chalet delivering it face to face you know i think that kind of that human human interaction and all of the all the kind of non-verbal cues and signals that we naturally kind of give off enable those those things to be cultivated more quickly such that you can then start to kind of move something forward positively. Yeah. Have you pulled anything from your military career into the civilian world since you've left? Uh, probably everything. I mean, it's kind of... Um, my colleagues are probably quite bored of it by now, but <laughs> I does do that tell you? <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, probably because I answer my questions too long or too slowly. <laughs> but no, I think um, I think language is the is the differentiator. You know, military language is quite specific. It's it's it is a it is a vernacular that you are taught. You have to use because it ensures common understanding and then you become kind of slightly obsessed by it and follow it to the letter whether it's mission language you know good old kind of JSP 101 staff writing or whatever it is but you become reliant upon it because you know it's a framework that you can follow and frameworks are easier to follow than making it up each time you do something and you know that everyone's going to understand what it is that you're trying to say um that language might be different across a different company in business terms, but it's still there's still elements of common language, and it might be different across departments. So, for example, our engineering team and our product team have a deep language that they speak to each other because it's about code and it's about coding languages and how they deliver the products that they need to deliver or develop. I have no clue how any of that works or what it all means. <coughs> but then I don't need to. I just need to understand the benefits of what they're trying to build for the end user, which in our case are, you know, soldiers, sailors, airmen and women. Um, so that's fine. But they still have a framework with which they kind of communicate whatever it is they need to do. What I find is that when I'm trying to analyze a problem, develop a solution and then communicate it to other people, I'm still going back to either my old TAMS or the staff officer's handbook to provide the framework for what it is that I need to do, 
how to develop those courses of action and how to then communicate the right one, having analysed it, assessed it and scored it potentially, even if you're just doing that subconsciously, but you're still basically doing an estimate and then you're communicating to that estimate. It doesn't need to be a set of orders, but that framework is a pretty useful thing to follow to make sure that your intent um, and the direction of travel and the ends and the goals are understood so that they can be met. Um, so yeah, I still kind of, I'm a still a bit of a staff waller when it comes to that kind of thing. Even if it's just to reassure myself that I've done all the things that need to be done to put a decent plan together and then try and execute it. Um, so yeah, I think there's there's lots of things that you can take from the military, either from experience of people, you know, superiors, your team, leadership roles, but also the frameworks that you do in terms of mostly communication into business. And I think that's when you look at people that are championing ex-service men and women into business, those are the things that they are, you know, it has to be more than just employ a soldier because he'll turn up. You know, there's got to be more than that. And that is a good thing. That's a good start point in some cases. But there's so much more that our, you know, young people that are leaving the military have experienced and learnt, formally or informally, that can be applied into a civilian setting that would probably differentiate them from lots of other people in society. Um, and so I think you can you can pull all those those skills and attributes through. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. It's hard, <coughs> it's often hard to it's often hard to communicate to potential employers what those are. That's a nightmare. That is a pro I mean, they're all G Google Translate doesn't go <laughs> and other other services are available, but. And I found this, and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I wasn't unique in trying to communicate a military CV into a language that a non-military recruiter or employer would understand is really difficult. And I know that you get support as you go through, you know, career transition workshops and all that kind of good stuff. But when you then sit down and have to do, I mean, I went through, I don't know how many versions. And I was really lucky. Loads of people supported me. Oh, and CV. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and reaching out to people that have already gone through that process to help you translate your own experience into something that would be meaningful. And and you know, sadly, but this is the way of the world. Quite often, in re in relation to pounds and pence, and in terms of efficiencies, and and, and quantifying the benefits or the improvements that you are saying that you have put across is quite a difficult thing. You know, I was a warrior company commander. Can't remember how many mil millions of quiz worth of equipment was on my signature. I didn't own it. But if you, if you kind of extrapolate that into a civilian context, then you are effectively the resource owner of how many <coughs> million quids worth of hardware. Now, you, your natural instinct wouldn't be to go, well, I was the custodian of, they were just, that was just your kit. Yeah. But actually, that is quite a big deal in the same way that if you join a, you know, a small, a small business and you've been 
a platoon sergeant, you might well have had direct responsibility for more people than the owner or CEO of that small business. But you wouldn't necessarily think to to communicate that as a as part of your experience. But it absolutely is. Um, so yeah, I think there's a bit of a job on trying to translate that across. Yeah, I, I also think though that we pilots and we being military who are leaving or military who are out and early on in their journey of I need a job, I don't know what I want my career to be, just get me paid quick and I think I need to find my forever job straight away. Yeah. I think we pile too much um I think we pile too much pressure on ourselves with the C V as well though. Yeah. And especially I think especially the lower down the ranks you go. So even just even just separating the officers from the uh non commissioned folk. Uh because I think when we're applying for jobs, we being, me being, you know, I was never an officer. Uh, the job, the kind of jobs we're going for, you're much more likely to get an interview. But it's purely based on the fact that you've, you've got the, you meet the basic requirements of what they're asking for. Yeah. But only because we t- it tend to be lesser paid jobs than what an officer would be qualified to do. They're not professional jobs. And so there's, there's the, there's less of a need to like as you were giving an example there, fluff out your CV with all the all those tangibles that you need to draw out that you don't necessarily know what they are yeah right um, and uh, I think that and I think there's a it goes back to a previous question about I think it was the one about um, people I don't like or don't or oh don't the icebreaker yeah I think you have to be genuine in in a CV and having read having read lots of lots of ex-servicemen's CVs you can you can smell it a mile off particularly and I know that the person reading your CV isn't always going to be someone who knows the intricacies of military rank structures or responsibilities or experience but still you know, the adage for a reason exists that you you shouldn't put something on paper that you wouldn't be able to defend in interview. And and when that piece of paper, or not paper because it's on print, because people shouldn't be printing on on a screen because we shouldn't be printing stuff off anymore. But that's the that's the gateway between an application and an interview. And so it has to feel genuine, but it has to meet the requirement. Um, but once you get to the interview, I'm not looking at the CV anymore. I might make some notes because it it's a start point for discussion or questioning. But it's the person that you're speaking to, the way they carry themselves and the way they present themselves and the way they, you know, depending on what you're looking for, if you're looking for someone to do a role that is quite individual and has a specific skill set and doesn't necessarily need to be part of a kind of a, team structure or anything where there's a collective purpose then you're looking for someone who can do the job and is probably quite happy just to kind of do it on their own but in most cases certainly in my experience you're looking for someone who yeah okay so they need to meet a minimum or a basic requirement but more importantly you're looking for someone that is a good bloke or lady um, who is willing to learn willing to put the hours in and, and commit and 
have you know put the effort necessary effort in but probably most importantly is willing to um be part of the team support the team be supported by other people and again going back to your previous question attributes that you are hoping you see in your military teams because again it's just about people working together or operating together whichever context you want to put them in but it's still just a human endeavor um and so you would probably be looking for similar attributes across across both spheres if you like mm. yeah you're right that that the, yeah the cv and that, that gateway from the application to the, the interview and the aim really wants to be not i need i want this to get a job it really should just be i need to get my foot in the door in the interview i think for ex-military because because when in my experience anyway the di the, the, where I made a difference in my job prospects was when I actually got to sit in front of someone because I knew that I was confident appeared confident, appeared enthusiastic yep. I knew that at a point I hadn't bullshitted in my CV yep. um, uh, and, and I knew by that point as well because I'd been out a few years when I actually had to start doing interviews was that compared to my civilian counterparts who were going for the job I probably appeared more confident and enthusiastic than they did, just by just through background without with, with effortless, without, you know, effortless. It's because of who we are, yep. what we've experienced, and but most people don't recognise that. I don't mm. think. They just don't recognise it. And uh, and I went in some, in, uh, went in, let's say some. I only ever had two, and the two interviews I went into, I was woefully inexperienced for them. One of them I didn't have the qualifications, uh, as in I had none of the qualifications. I was below them all, was health and safety manager role. Yeah. And like a senior health and safety manager role. And the only thing that got me through was confidence and enthusiasm. And the only thing that got me the interview, interestingly enough, was because I had there was military experience on my on my C V yeah. and they just thought, This guy's interesting, let's get him in. And then and then nailed it. Yeah. Nailed it. So maybe the other message is be interesting as well. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> you never know who you're gonna get. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, back to the CV. Sorry, I'm just conscious people listen to this. Everyone's always applying for jobs, right? It's always a fucking nightmare. One of the key things I learned about the CV is we pile we pile pressure on ourselves, right? Thinking, oh my god, it needs to be perfect. I got to get it perfect. It has to be right. Got to get it perfect. Worrying about before you send it out, you spend hours on it, hours and hours mm -hmm. on it, right? You could get it as perfect as you want right now. In two weeks' time, or even a week's time, you're going to look back at it and go. Oh, and I need to change that. Oh yeah, I need to change that. And that's just it's the way a it constantly is. evolving the, yeah, beast. It is. So, does it look good to me now? Is it accurate? Do I think I've pulled out everything I can? No. Yes. Send it. Yeah. And then just you're gonna it's gonna change every week. I need to change it and yeah. do it again. Don't overpressure yourself with it. And we got for the right tangent there. That's a good one. Um, it is tough. It is so tough. It's also a challenge, though. Think it's also a challenge, you know, with, with military going into the civilian world. The, the other challenge is balancing it with, well, actually, we don't think we're not always the best things in sliced bread. That's the other thing, you know, within in. But that's healthy. I think that's healthy. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's humility every now and again, and that's something I think that you can, you know, we talk a lot about all the all the, um, all the great skills and powers and experience that military people have. And again, I'm being slightly generalistic here, but I've met a few people that would probably benefit from getting a bit of humility down their grid every now and again. And I think we all know who we're talking about. But you get that by challenging yourselves and putting yourself in a 
an alien environment, with all the right approaches and attitudes, you're going to succeed. But I think, you know, everyone, there's lots of kind of scare yourself once a day type philosophies, and I'm not sure I'd go that far. But every now and again, mm-hmm. I think it's healthy. It keeps you on your toes. I know of a person yeah. who um, was a not long go out in the military, and this person, I said, I'm trying to avoid the gender. It was a bloke, <laughs> obviously a fucking bloke. He uh, he applied for for, for multiple jobs, multiple companies. <clears throat> anyway, one in particular, for some reason, stuck in his mind, who just wasn't responding. So he made however many job applications, and and this one for for some reason wasn't responding. Uh, uh, no, sorry, mo- no, most don't respond, but for some reason this one annoyed him about this one not responding. Yeah. Right. Uh, didn't respond two or three times to his applications for different jobs. Then X amount of months later, he gets a phone call to ask him to come in for an interview with this same company, and he fucked them off. <laughs> he said. No, he basically fucked them off because they didn't respond the first because time. Because he didn't respond, you got the audacity to not respond to me. And my experience, my CV, and blah 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 blah, you're not worth me. And then phoned up. This guy's unemployed, by the way, at the time. Okay, crazy, mm. crazy. But you get that. Yeah. You get it. I mean, it's, uh, that pride and admiration for and in what you've done and what you've achieved is absolutely quality but you need to <laughs> you need to draw a line somewhere there's always a bit line. of context needed honest to god yeah. yeah honest to god yeah bringing you this podcast today are combat cigars combat cigars was founded in 2021 by three friends three former colleagues in the parachute regiment the british army and i'm very glad to say i am one of those three very glad to have been invited into the company and it is super exciting to be working with those guys again. Combat Cigars sources its cigars from a family who have been rolling cigars in the heart of Colombia for over 200 years. The cigars that Combat Cigars supply to you are only available through Combat Cigars. You cannot get these anywhere else. Each cigar is unique and we have four currently in the collection we have the last post we have the oath of allegiance we have the center of mass and we have the victory the victory features on its cigar band the medal ribbon of the south atlantic medal with rosette very significant at the moment given that it is the 40th anniversary of the falklands conflict Head over to combatcigars.co.uk to see the collection. Also check out the Combat Cigars Humidor, which is handmade out of ammunition tins and will keep your cigars perfectly stored for whenever you need them. When you think of cigars for your next event, or the next event you're at, be it a wedding, be it a mess do, a dining in, a dining out, a promotion, or just getting together with your crew, think Combat Cigars. Combatcigars.co.uk did you, were you happy when you left? Yes. Uh, which reassured me, because if I hadn't been, then I probably shouldn't have left or been leaving. Um, it, it felt like the right thing to do. And I think that is the, for me, that was the acid test. If I'd had any, any hesitation, and I signed off in my living room at home, 
on a good old DII laptop as they were being issued at the time. And yeah, on JPA, breakfast the next morning. Good morning. I signed off last night. Oh, I mean, it wasn't a it wasn't a surprise. We'd been talking about it for some time, but it felt right. It felt like the right time for me, for the family. Um, and so I did it with no hesitation. Um, I did it for the reasons that I believed to be the right ones at the time, which, like I say, I'm reassured were because I've, I don't regret leaving. I didn't leave because I hated the army or the people or what it stood for, anything like that. It was just, you know, I loved the army. I loved doing what I did and the people I did it with. Um, I probably felt like I had achieved most of my own personal goals or any that were left were becoming unreachable. And so you start to think about what it, you know, what are the other alternatives and they didn't <coughs> appeal massively. And I think that the reality and without, you know, using shrouded speech is that I was unlikely to go back to regimental duty. And what I had enjoyed having joined the army on a genuinely on a bit of a whim because I couldn't really kind of think of much else to do. But again, reassuringly, it was the thing that then occupied my life for 18 years and I loved every minute of it. So I think it was a, again, going back to kind of trusting your instinct. It was, it was a decent call at the time, even if it was based on very little kind of knowledge, understanding or, or ambition at the time. It just felt like a good idea. And then leaving the army felt like a good idea, probably for a few, few more considered reasons. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was pleased to have done it for for all the right reasons, having enjoyed what I did for all the same reasons, really. So, yeah. Question for you. How yeah. much do you think your rank upon leaving, not your rank, but generally, people, how much do you think people's rank upon leaving affects the probability of them landing a job almost straight away? Any job? straight away um i don't think it matters because i think i mean i think you have to match experience and 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 with experience typically comes rank to aspiration and expectation i think if they are skewed then you might struggle so for example you know someone with very little experience um, shouldn't expect to step across into a large company as, you know, the managing director, which is a fairly extreme example. But typically there are, there are probably parallels that individuals leaving the military would step across into relative to their experience and therefore rank. And I think as long as those, as long as those align, it doesn't matter what they, you know what the industry is necessarily because as you've just alluded to quite often the employer is looking for the right person above the all the necessary skills and, and experience unless it's a very specific or there are legal reasons why you need to be have a certain qualification or whatever it is but if it's about the person then 
that's what they're looking for. And so I think, and someone in, uh, someone made an interesting point to me as I was leaving, um, and a bit of advice about when to leave. And I think there is a there can be a disconnect at times with, and I'm and it's you know forgive me for it being slightly officer centric, but there is a there's a kind of there's a funny and I don't fully understand it just yet, having only been out for you know two or three years. There's this kind of funny hinterland between stepping across as I did perhaps as a kind of major with decent leadership and and management experience and there is a difference um, into something similar at a kind of management level within business and actually between that management level and board or executive type level there's there's often quite not much in between but that management level typically accommodates quite a large slice and this will be slightly army centric as well but there's a there's a, a large slice of those the ranks that you talk about which you know is con- commensurate with experience that that accommodates and so you could be kind of middling senior captain all the way up to possibly even a full colonel all gets kind of filtered into that that kind of management level and then above that when you get to i suppose your retired one stars and above they're automatically looking across into that kind of executive board type level, given their experience and and, um, and skills. And so the advice given to me was you're better off being at a lower end of that kind of management spectrum where your expectation is more likely to be matched by what's available to you in business rather than hanging on for a few more years and maybe, and for me, you know, it was, do I go now or do I kind of, continue to put myself through the ringer to get promoted and then maybe still leave, what benefit did that three, four, six years give me to leave as a lieutenant colonel, having probably not commanded? Because, you know, you can be pretty realistic about well, your your prospects at that stage of a military career, not least because everyone will tell you quite clearly. So there's no misunderstanding whether you are expected to kind of stream in to do command roles or be an RSM or whatever it is you know at that level there should be absolute transparency and more often than not there is and actually I remember giving a an SGAR to one of my colour blokes when I was a company commander and it probably wasn't the SGAR he was expecting but at the end of it he thanked me because he said actually I can manage my career now because everyone until now has said you're going to be the next big thing and he was a good bloke and he was a brilliant operator but I had, there were better guys around him. He would just happen to be, you know, stuck amongst a really rich mm. seam of, of senior NCOs. And so he would probably have missed out on opportunity gunning for all the best jobs against in that competition and then having to take whatever else was available, potentially, depending on boards and all the rest of it, rather than accepting that some of those heights were unattainable, unattainable rather, and therefore I can manage my career and my family in a slightly different way by following a slightly different path. And similarly for me, you know, so you had Swanee on not long ago, good mate of mine, we were at Sandhurst together and PCD and Staff College. And, you know, he would have had a very different career, formal career review than I did. 
and then you interviewed him as CO3 para, gleaming, and absolutely where he should be. Now, I'd always aspired to do that. And then, you know, a couple of jobs here and, and suddenly your profile doesn't necessarily match up. But the longer you wait for someone to tell you that that's the reality, the more opportunities you miss. And so I was grateful to an extent that I either made my own mind up or was kind of veered in the right direction by people that I worked for that flogging myself to be a CO was probably not the best thing to try and do. And at the time I punched out, I looked around me at the COs that I could see and frankly, they were either pretty unpleasant or pretty miserable. And I didn't want to be either of those people. Why do you think that was the case? I don't know. I mean, th there was a... I mean, you're in danger of cracking open a kind of a... What, what a are we talking? Uh, so it would have probably been... Well, when did I leave? 19. So between anywhere between kind of 17 and oh, mate, 19. The answer is obvious to that one. Come on. The answer is obvious to whether you're miserable or bastards. Go on then. They missed the boat. In their heads, they've missed the boat. Oh, I All see. All their predecessors okay. have had the tail end of Northern the Island. Yeah, Herricks and the Telex. The tail end of Northern Ireland, um, which I was going to say bullshit. There. Well, the tail end of Ireland was fucking bullshit. Apart from some summer pieces. <laughs> like I, know, cause yeah, yeah. I know you had a hairy time at the end of 2005. The year before, three Paris, uh, one of the companies in three Paris, a bit of a hairy time out there during yeah, the market yeah. season. But... Yeah, they all the those CEOs predecessors in twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, that is pre like pitting. Pre, yeah. For example I'm thinking Power Edge now. But before that it was all Telix and Herricks. And they've missed the fucking boat. And I and, and it's that is a nightmare place to be because I remember I remember before I think that accounts for the miserable ones. And, I'm oh, not sure it accounts for the other ones. I think it does. Because you're talking about nature and character now. And that those those individuals. Yeah, but they're f they're your nature. Your character is informed by how you perceive the world, and um, and how it is around you. And imagine you spent because to get to that, to get to that position, they had to have been in what twenty years to get to colonel. Just about yeah. So they've seen it all, done it all. They're watching COs, command battalions, command units in those situations. And by the time they get there, it's all finished. And they've got to try and make the name and make uh, and in their head make the name for themselves in some other way, with some batshit crazy exercise that they've thought up in their head that's never been done before, or some new training or some new doctrine that they're inventing. Do something different. That's where you get the bastards. They're trying to make a name. I remember it pre. I remember it pre Telic One. Assholes. The, the COs I remember that time were assholes, complete assholes. And I think that's the reason there was nothing going on. There was nothing going on. Maybe. I think that's the case. Maybe. Yeah, you're not looking like you agree with me. I don't know. I mean, I just think, <laughs> I think you're right. There is something in that. And there's definitely a, it's, there's always a hangover after campaigns and, or conflicts. And, you know, I'm sure your regiment would recognize that in the early 1980s. Um, and I think something similar occurred after Herrick closed down. And that, I think you're probably right, is, is part of it. I mean, and we were lucky to get pitting. Like the, the, having that is yeah. it sort of it keeps us. It's kept it's kept us still in that campaign mindset. Yeah. I think. And yeah, going, yeah. I ain't there, but sharp end of the stick. Extremely, we, we can still have these things pop up. Still in that mindset, where the other units have sort of 
not had the opportunity yet to, well, no, not had the opportunity to stay at that level of that mindset. Yeah. Because like I you said, it will dip. It will uh, dip. And I think we, um, we probably lived through an age that um, was kind of hitherto uncharted in relation to multiple operations. You know, within within so my gen you know i i'd commissioned in o two december o two and i remember watching the lads the black watch and the fusiliers on p c d in january february o three sat in the warminster t v room watching it and then they were going right get me off this course back to the battalion and a good mate of mine who's now c o of one of the cav regiments managed to blag his way off troop leaders and commanded a, an ambulance on Telic one so he did pretty well um as a kind of buckshy second lieutenant um and then it just but it just rolled and and, and in the end it was almost it was kind of that was a feast and now i suppose or the period afterwards was a famine and and you'd notice it when you get the lads on parade um, and you see soldiers and officers of a certain age and generation looking like kind of Kenny Everett with his massive shoulders and enormous rack of medals next to the young lads that, through no fault of their own other than time and, and consequence, haven't had that same opportunity. Um, and that's that hangover. Bringing you this podcast today are our Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation founded in 2009 in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whittaker, who was sadly killed on operations serving with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan in 2008. Rugby for Heroes fundraise for military charities. They do this by organising high-quality events which revolve around the themes of rugby, alcohol, live music, good food, good people. Since they were formed, Rugby for Heroes have raised nearly £120,000 for military charities. I have been a beneficiary of theirs in the past, and it's actually how I came to know about Rugby for Heroes, is when they reached out and helped me when I needed it most. And they have helped countless other individuals and countless other organisations help ex-military and servant personnel in their toughest times. Rugby for Heroes, I've got many events lined up for 2022. They've already held their first event. It was a supper club raising money for the 353 charity and they have got more supper clubs and more festivals on the way. Look at their website, rugbyforheroes.org to keep up to date when the next events are. Make sure you get along to at least one of them if you can and I will see you there. I've been to every one of their events since I became aware of rugby heroes and like i said since they helped me out and i'll be going to every single one of their events in the future wherever possible rugbyheroes.org or you can find them on social media at rugby heroes at rugby number four heroes i was in colchester just off just slightly but on topic but off topic i was in colchester not long ago for someone's leaving do uh, i say leaving do it's uh, a, a mate who used to be a, a pilot and he's he's leaving colchester to go elsewhere yeah but i bumped into a lad in in the in the fox and fiddler and collie who was 
he got in like six years after me. He was a Tom when I knew him, a private when I knew him. And I didn't realise, right, but he joined, he came to Three Para like a month after we got back off the Herrick 4, 2006. And uh, when he was describing it, he, to me, he basically said it's the worst, like the worst time of his life. Yeah, I can imagine. And when he told me that he went to, a, when he told me which platoon he went to within Three Para, I was like, oh my God. Because he had the renegades and the and the, the personalities for all of the wrong reasons yep. in that platoon. You know, you always get it with any unit, don't you? There's just one part of the unit where you go, fucking hell. <laughs> you know, we talked about cultures earlier. And yeah. You go, fucking hell, man. Like, they're great. Winner on ops. But yeah, not break, break glass here, and event of war. A, a commander's nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, and, and he went to them and it was just, he literally, I mean, he, he, he's one of the reasons he left. I think he did, he did, he did a tour, but then he left because that, that, the first six months of him being in, he'd come to a unit which is just, you know, what, what a lot of the units came to be is super experienced. But at that time, it was only three power, far and above what anyone else had ever done at that point. Yeah. Um, n- not counting some of the units that did some of the heavier shit in Iraq at the time. And uh, he came to that as a new Tom, Pro- possibly without wings, because we were getting guys. Because it was a short of shortage of oh perks, shortage poor, of poor staffing. Bloke. Possibly, I can't remember if it was without wings, but we were getting guys coming to come to three power, and he had no wings because there was no airframes. We had guys. Yeah, because all the Strat AT was away. No, they were qualified to jump, and they deployed on the next tour, and they went out, and they had a Herrick medal on their chest. They'd done a Herrick tour, and then come back and have to go back to Bryce Norton and do the jumps do course with Joe's. With oh. like recruit, <laughs> you're crazy. It's mental. It's but crazy. You, but you get that even, and it goes back to and your question about the kind of pros and cons of of that kind of small unit, um, that small unit environment. Mm. It's the same on an exercise. You know, it only has to be the last big thing to you know. Yeah. Memories. Yeah, memories yeah, a short yeah. thing, and so you know we took yeah, we true, yeah. my company did back to back battises with the KRH battle group. No, we did one with the Royal Welsh battle group and then one with the KRH battle group straight afterwards or something like that. And and even the lads that joined the company after we got f- back from, ba- I mean, it was Battus, it was an exercise. I mean, it was a gleaming exercise, but it was an exercise nonetheless. And you could still see the lads going, yeah, well, you went in Canada. Yeah, that's right. And, yeah, that's but point. that's just, and that's that kind of herd mentality. And it's and, and as much as that is, also, that's something that you're hoping for because the lads have obviously gelled around the experience of being on that exercise, but it then can kind of counteracts itself in as much as it then becomes something you've got to break down to enable others to integrate. Point, it only has to be the last big thing. Yeah, yeah it's a good point. Never thought of it like that. Because it doesn't have to be, yeah. you know, the beach landings. It just has to be the last thing that the lads are all talking about. Yeah, and that happened to me when I joined. They were referencing. I've just recalling. And you saying when I joined, they were referencing. It, they were referencing two things when I joined up. I thought, oh, God, I'm not. And one was an island tour in 99, because I joined yeah. in 2000. Uh, uh, and the other one was a big airborne exercise. Yeah. And, haven't be, and uh, the airborne exercise hadn't been one for a couple of years. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, that's just, I mean, that's just human nature. When I joined the Cheshires, it was... Um, they'd just done a Dungannon. So the two things that had happened was Dungannon and... Um, and they'd been in residential in, in Cyprus. So the Cyprus thing was, Cyprus was mega, life was great, and you didn't, you weren't part of it. And then it was what we did in South Armagh. 
Um, that's where FOMO comes from. That's well, it is. But it, came, but it also moves on so quickly because then the, the, we then did like three Salisbury Plain exercises. So 12 months later, everyone's like, yeah, well, you weren't on the Salisbury Plain exercise. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's, <laughs> it's obviously not that big a deal if we're going to kind of move on that quickly. Um, but that, I think that's, again, that's just human nature a little bit. Interested. Right. Moving on. Moving on from all of that. Yeah. We are in an age where... This is starting to sound a bit more serious now. Yeah. Tech now, mate. That stuff you don't know about. Hang on a minute. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you know what? Someone, someone, uh, someone explains to me... Uh, um, Said something a month ago. I read it or I heard it somewhere, and they're saying like, we like. Was it on our amazing website? It was not. <laughs> it was not. Um, and it was. They were. It was how and why they think there's so much. Like the, the face of the planet is going to change within the next maybe ten years. Like maybe a little bit longer. Mental. And, and they were they were alluding to. Uh, they were alluding to like this is basically the conversion. Of, we've got the convergence and maturing of four different technologies coming about. Uh, one, blockchain technology. Two, uh, space travel. Three, artificial intelligence. And four was robotics. Yeah. And they're all going to mature at the same time. They're all, uh, around about the same time, it's going to be, all coming together, it's going to be like, what? <laughs> you know, yeah. we're going to be sitting here in 25 years' time on a HR podcast going, what? remember that? Remember we were talking about all lack of urgent technologies? Oh my God. In it's fact, happened. we sit on the moon doing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Digital transformation. Yeah. Uh, there's two questions I've got for you. And go you on can then. either answer them directly or you can, you can just, we can just go around the subject if you want. One is, uh, how do you think that's going to impact the armies of the future? Or we can even just be specific about the British Army, or British forces, right? Yep. Uh, and two is, why why do we always seem, we being uh, nation-state militaries, you know, military forces, as in governmental military forces, not private military forces, British Army, British forces, why do we always seem to be behind the curve in the procurement and application of cutting-edge technologies? Okay. So, the first question about, you know, digital transformation is, as far as I'm concerned, it's, I suppose it's a, it's a stepping stone in that, that journey, if you like, towards that convergence of technologies. So, it's an enabling function of, of that type of development. Because if you don't have the structure in place, the infrastructure and the processes, the hardware, the software, and everything that supports it, then enabling those technologies, those novel next generation technologies to bring about the benefits that they can to the human user, which lest we forget is at the end of this this chain, um, then you can't exploit it. And the benefits that exist now or will exist in the future become either singularly unattainable or you are unable to integrate them into other systems that you want to take benefits out of or existing systems that can be enhanced by novel technology. And so I think, and, and there's a parallel across into um, 
into training systems for for the military um and i think i mean digital transformation is can be this this narrow or this wide depending on what you're looking at because it is just an enormous an enormous network but i think if certainly what what i'm trying to do you know with what i'm doing work wise and it chimes to the discussion we had about when i left and why i left is that though that digital transformation can and will i have faith will transform the training available to the troops such that you can either optimize and gain efficiencies in in financial terms so that you then have greater resource available for other things whatever they may be more more people more protective equipment better this better that rather than plowing dollar after dollar into training when there are more more kind of efficient and effective ways of doing it and digital transformation will enable that and it will also enable the better management and exploitation of data whether it's data that's been collected at the kind of tactical operational edge that you can then quickly exploit into the tactical or operational scenario to gain advantage or whether it's data that you can use to create insights and um, objective information that assists the human decision maker and ultimately you know in decision making it's it's for all the AI in the world, and this is you know my opinion. But for all the AI, AI in the world, a human being at some point will have to make a decision. Now, it might be to make a decision at the front end of that process, so that you can ensure that the the machine makes the right decision at the end of it, or you're at the end of the machine process, and you then take that information presented to you and still make a decision as a human being. And so I think if you can, if digital transformation gives us those two things, then it will give benefit back to the troops. And I've mentioned earlier, the Americans are quite good at, in, in industry, at focusing in on benefits to the warfighter. And, um, and I think that's something that we can, we can try and emulate, probably in a slightly more British way, but, you know, focusing in on what benefits can be achieved so that you know ultimately the the troops when they find themselves in in a situation where this type of thing has supported them then they've been supported appropriately so the other question i think was to do with um what was it lagging behind effectively you know missing out on what's cutting edge i think historically um the the procurement just was too difficult and I can kind of see there were good reasons for that. You know, there's a lot of, when you're spending taxpayers' money, scrutiny, accountability is is quite key because people want to know what taxes are being spent on. Um, but I don't think processes helped in that sense. I think what is improving, or at least the narrative is improving, is that kind of a slightly more agile and dynamic approach to acquisition and procurement is might not yet be the reality 
but it's the aspiration. And the fact that that is an aspiration is a positive, that's a good start. You know, whether it materializes is to be seen, I think. But companies like ours being able to, you know, everyone knows that it, we move a lot faster than bigger companies who move a lot faster than even bigger companies that move faster than the MOD or the single services or whoever. And, you know, the, some of the large prime kind of big name companies would probably by their own admission acknowledge that they they struggle to move as quickly as they ought to 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 best support the military customer if you like but small and medium enterprise businesses are being embraced a little bit more should i say by government and principally the mod such that we can turn around very quickly small-scale demonstrators all the way up to major contracts within certain, you know, I'll get slightly boring now, but within certain kind of treasury thresholds and all the rest of it and competition guidelines and blah. But there is a willingness to see what is out there. And it goes back to your point about, you know, fear of missing out. Because companies that have that expertise in developing next-generation technology... <coughs> will quite quickly move from industry to industry if they don't see development in that market for their products or services. Because why would they hang around? They can't, they would go out of business. So if you, you know, if you're a, if you are, you know, the Ministry of Defense, shall we say, you need to have a system agile enough to keep those tech companies interested in selling to defense customers because otherwise they'll just repurpose themselves and go and sell to someone else. And you've missed out on technology that then if we go back to all the, my first part one of the answer, which is benefits of the troops on the ground, you've missed your chance. And you potentially end up having to spend more money on a less well-optimized solution. That is, and I think what you're alluding to is the fact that typically something is obsolete by the time it comes into service. And there's already something better available off the shelf. And how do we overcome that when we're spending treasury cash? I can't answer that question for you under the uh, conditioning conditions that I'm in now. <laughs> but, working, you know, <coughs> I know it's back on, it's good. <laughs> but you get my point. So I think, you know, it, it's, it would be acknowledged that it's difficult to, to truly keep up with. And there are some, I mean, again, making up a statistic, but there was, I read something along the lines of a, you know, a, a global applications-based provider that will remain nameless can develop an idea into an application in 48 hours and have it on the App Store or the you know, Amazon apps or whatever that quickly. You know, any government department would struggle to keep a pace with that with their own internal... In fact, most, most other organisations would. But that is how quickly things can change. And if you also think about, if you take that all the way from this back-end idea, procurement and acquisition, all the way to the sharp end of what we've kind of been talking about from our own operational experience, and you look at, particularly Syria was a really good example of where people were, <coughs> were innovating with technology so quickly that your countermeasures, you were, you were constantly chasing your tail. So, you know, a good example of which was buying off-the-shelf drones and then crudely arming them 
to the point at which, and there was mass proliferation because you're spending 20 bucks on a thing that you could effectively chuck in the air and not care whether it comes back. And suddenly you're, the TTPs at the other end of this were having to change on an almost daily basis to deal with that that speed with which technology was developing how business at that end was being was being done um you know it doesn't change the kind of that the nature of fighting another human being when you get down into the guts of it but it changes the the means by which you choose to go about it and that survivability conundrum um on the on the procurement issue going back to the military on the on the procurement issue is that so within the British military, is that a is that an issue of bureaucracy or is it an issue of that we're applying the processes in a way that is outdated? So I mean, just in my just in my like listening to you, you're talking right now, thinking out loud, part of the brain. Yeah. What about if I'm again focus on the procurement process as an example? I imagine there's a procurement process as a blanket across the board where there's, there's very few instances where it can be. There's there's alternative methods for procurement that will be approved. For example, I can't imagine an SF following the same procurement I process you're going to go as the there. military. Yeah. But what about what about in times where you can afford to have a little bit more risk, as in times where the tempo of operations is a little bit less, decentralising the process, for example, yeah, yeah. and allowing units, uh, I would say big units, division level, maybe a brigade level. To form their own, again, just focus on procurement as an example, their own procurement process that aligns to certain guidelines set up on high, but allows a lot of leniency for how and why they do things and buy things. Okay, so I think elements of that does exist, and you know, I'm I'm no, I'm not a chapter and verse expert in this, but. I've I've kind of been in and around the process long enough to to understand that under, within certain thresholds and, and innovation is a is a great way of research and innovation is a great way of uh, you know the army say or the division or w- whatever level that is a good way of unlocking resources such that you can get hold of things quickly um but of course typically the thresholds in monetary terms are fairly low because they want the risk to be low because ultimately when you are researching or innovating there is a likelihood or in some cases even a desire that it might fail because you can learn a great deal from that failure perhaps more so than if it just worked the first time um so so i think that that those processes exist um perhaps what is more complicated is taking the outcomes of those kind of research and development um, investments into the major programs is is where bureaucracy does have a part to play and I think the problem with the problem with trying to focus this activity on times when perhaps we are less operationally committed and therefore logically thinking there would be greater resources available that also tends to be the time at which the treasury squeeze the budget down to the military or any minute military because the demand is lower 
and you are no longer there is no longer a kind of um, immediate um, political reason for those levels of investment you know we we benefited and i think one of the great successes of of coming out of the herrick campaign was the amount of kit that had been procured rapidly in for herrick that was then brought in as a core capability you know whether it was i think probably foxhound is a good example low low level tactical level weapon weapon systems is a there's lots of good kit and on the man kit you know survivability kit the stuff that makes a real difference and also you know going back to the training system so I'm a, I used to manage a, a training system that had that was being delivered back to the field army and it had come out of a UOR an urgent operational requirement for Herrick that everyone realized was gleaming and could have real benefit taking it away from the kind of Afghan scenario based training exercises into good old-fashioned kind of major combat operations lower level tactical training it would have great benefit and it did and so they rolled the contract that was there to deliver for herrick into a core field army contract and so that capability continued to add value to the troops at the lowest level um and i think what and just going on to rusi recently something i picked up on from what CG, new cgs was talking about this whole idea of the new main effort is mobilization. You know, everyone's talking about NATO and Russia and everything that's happening in Eastern Europe and Ukraine. So he's identified, you know, mobilizing for war to prevent war, effectively. Now, that will, for my money, that will work if a campaign approach to that is applied in the same way that it was applied when we were double-hatting with Telic and Herrick and still closing down the towers in South Omar and doing a little bit in at the back end of Bosnia and all of those things that we're all doing the perfect storm of operational activity that was then properly resourced because it was a, on a campaign footing. And I think if you if op mobilize is treated in the same way, then the benefits of that in terms of procurement of kit equipment, systems, services, applications, digital transformation will be more readily resourced because there is a singular focus, there's a main effort, you know, selection selection and maintenance of the aim, all that good stuff. It's there. And so we can, you know, the army and the other service can focus their efforts on delivering against that that mission and obviously that's an army thing, but you know, it's not going to be done in isolation. Um an industry knows what it is that it needs to do to best support that that focus and so suddenly and it alludes funny how we keep cycling back to things it alludes back to the idea of how do you get the most out of a team in my view would be to have an identified and common purpose that everyone can follow and then you you, you roll in trust and integrity and all the usual kind of the the the, the bastions of human interaction um so what mobilize could be a great opportunity to deliver tactically and operationally what CGS thinks needs delivering against the current threat, but also to to kind of bind together the way the troops do their business and the way industry supports what they need to do. Right. Been a pleasure.
It has been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it, do, even uh, though it's about a million degrees in here. Well, I was hoping you stripped out your, uh, <laughs> your, your budgie smugglers. The aircon's fine. I just switched it off. <laughs> you just turned it up. <laughs> um, how do people follow what you're doing, get hold of you, and what Haydeen are doing? And get a look at that wonderful website. Mate. So, uh, I mean, Google us. Haydeen.com is, is the company's website. Um, I, I, Come on. I don't really have much of a presence if you like but that is changing linkedin is something that for me personally is is kind of a bit of a go-to um i think i've got a twitter profile somewhere but i'll let me let me work it all out and i'll linkedin LinkedIn. yeah nick brown linkedin there's a nice black and white picture of me pointing at someone black and white yeah i thought i'd go retro old school School. It's a few pounds ago as well, so it's a much better picture. <laughs> Someone said to me when I left, he went, he kind of whispered at me and he said, um, you know when you leave, your, your clothes all shrink. I went, yeah, whatever. And he was all right. He was bang on. <laughs> brilliant. Mate, let's do it again. Yeah, nice I liked one. it. And good luck. Yeah, and you. It was brilliant. And, you know, fair play to you for this. This is, this is, this is gleaming. Do you know an aircon engineer? Uh, no, <laughs> but I'll find you one. <laughs>